and thank you for tuning in to the Recovered Athlete Podcast, a space where we explore food, mental health, sport, and everything in between while getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. I'm your host, Lizzie Briasco. Let's dive in. Hey guys, welcome back, round two. So today we're going to be talking about how an eating disorder may present and what it may look like if someone is struggling with severely distorted thoughts and behaviors around food, body movement, that kind of thing. I feel like the most commonly discussed symptoms and side effects of eating disorders are the physical signs and symptoms, which I'll go through really quickly, but honestly, I feel like most of these, pretty much all of these physical symptoms are related to restrictive or anorexic tendencies, and it's not that there's anything wrong with that at all, but I do think that that really contributes to the idea that if someone, especially an athlete, has an eating disorder, people think it's automatically a restrictive kind. And based on the research, we know that that simply isn't true. Most athletes struggle with a variety of behaviors, and if we had to slap a diagnosis on it, it would most likely be OSFED or bulimia nervosa. So yes, there are some aspects of perfectionism and restriction across all eating disorders, but with athletes specifically, it seems to be that the most common behaviors are related to binging and purging in some way. And this is just a gentle reminder that when we say purging, We're not referring exclusively to getting rid of food by vomiting. It could include exercise bulimia as well, which is the most common form of bulimia in athletes. So quickly running through that list of physical symptoms and side effects, which are probably the most talked about because they are the most measurable, because they're physically measurable, they're not in your head, but that can include significant recent weight gain or weight loss, and this can be a bit messy, especially when it comes to athletes, because it may be related to their sport if you have a player trying to make weight for a certain weight class, or vice versa, trying to lose weight for a weight class. If you have a player who's a position on a team that needs to gain or lose weight, those are obviously related to the sport, may not necessarily be related to an eating disorder, but it could be. And athletes in lean sports who face a lot of pressure to look a certain way or have a certain percent body fat and are underfueling. Again, it all comes back to the intention. Some athletes do really benefit from lowering their body fat percentage. Do I think we put too much emphasis on it, especially in endurance sports and lean sports? Kinda? And I also acknowledge that athletes can benefit from a certain power to weight ratio. I also believe that that's very individual and varies a lot between athletes. Anywho, when there is a recent significant weight loss, we also tend to see a slew of other symptoms such as feeling cold all the time, constipation, you gotta eat to shit, dry hair and skin, brittle nails, slow resting heart rate, delayed wound healing, a pretty shit immune system. Like, if you're getting sinus infections and colds and the flu every couple of weeks, that's not a good sign. Low bone mineral density, along with low bone mineral density or low BMD, comes an increase of bone injuries. Endurance athletes, I'm looking at you. And amenorrhea in females, which I think is kind of an outdated marker. Yes, it can be a symptom. Is it the definitive symptom of underfueling or a female athlete having an eating disorder? No. I like to think that we're getting away 
from that, especially with the introduction of REDS, which stands for Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport, which is way more inclusive of the different symptoms, both like physiological, sociological, psychological, and can also include men in that as well. So it's not female specific like the female athlete triad was or is because it still exists, I guess. So those are the physical symptoms that most people are aware of, but I really want to dive into the emotional and behavioral side effects because these can often get overlooked, maybe because someone doesn't really even notice they're happening, but I think it's really just because it's really uncomfortable to talk about. <laughs> so that's why we're going to talk about it. I would categorize most emotional and behavioral impacts of eating disorders or severely disordered eating into three main categories. Isolation, extreme judgments about food, body, and self, and food obsession. So if we look at isolation, things that would fall under that umbrella would be eating when you're alone or in secret, when you're really really putting a lot of effort into isolating yourself in general, but especially when you're around food. Hiding or stockpiling food and any evidence that you've eaten, hiding food wrappers, taking anything that you've eaten directly out into the trash can and not just putting it in your rubbish bin, not going to parties or social events, A, because you're extremely anxious and there's probably some depression going on there as well, but B, because there's just so much shame and fear and embarrassment of eating in front of other people. I would throw a lack of control around food into the isolation piece as well, because that usually only happens when someone is eating in private. When there is a lack of control with our eating, it usually stems from us feeling like there is such an intense emotion that we cannot bear to sit with it. So we need to get rid of it as quickly as possible, which can translate into eating as quickly as possible. There can also be the situation of not eating enough throughout the day, and so it feels like we're a bottomless pit, and that's just our physiological drive, eating so, so quickly and rapidly that it feels like we're out of control when it's happening, which is a pretty normal thing in binge eating disorder. Eating very quickly and rapidly and having that loss of control when you're eating is one of the prime criteria for binge eating disorder. And it can stem from there being restriction involved, which I think a lot of people don't realize. BED is not just binge, 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 it's restrict, binge, restrict, binge. And there's also that element of perfectionism, just like there is with the restrictive tendencies. So moving on to the next one, extreme judgments about food, body, and self. And this really refers to those extreme feelings of guilt, shame, disgust, embarrassment, fear, anxiety, with pretty much anything in any situation, any activity related to food, body, or movement. And it can also trickle down into compulsive overexercise. So when we do have extreme judgments about our body or extreme body distortions, which may even be a better indicator of eating disorder risk in athletes than a general population, according to most research, which is pretty interesting because athletes are exposed to a lot of unrealistic body ideals, they have the general pressures from society and then the pressures from their individual sport, which really just compounds the issue and can result in really poor body image. And this can affect their exercising tendencies. So when I say compulsive overexercise, I'm not talking about, you know, doing a morning workout and then an afternoon weight session. And again, this, this area can get a little messy because athletes are exercising all the damn time. <laughs> 
So where do we draw the line between exercising for your sport and doing a little bit extra so that you're stronger, faster, more powerful versus exercising compulsively? And, you know, I'm not like a certified expert research connoisseur in all of this, but I think a couple of things stand out right away. Frequently pushing yourself past that uncomfortable place and riding the pain train every single time. Secret workouts outside of practice without your coaches or teammates knowing. And again, with the emotional piece, feeling extreme guilt, shame, or distress over missing a workout or not exercising and training through injury. And I'm not talking like a small little uncomfortable pain. I'm talking like you have a diagnosed injury, you've been told to rest, you're doing rehab, you're not allowed to go to practice for two weeks or something, yet you're still finding ways to exercise that are not allowing your body to rest and heal the way it needs to. This also ties into an extreme fear of weight gain, which a lot of athletes have, and for understandable reasons, It's kind of hard not to have a fear of weight gain when you're constantly told that you can't be carrying extra weight, it'll slow you down, it affects how you look in your competitive uniform. It's kind of like the whole body image thing. Athletes have to deal with the general societal message that looking a certain way or having a certain amount of fat on your body is bad, and then it's compounded by the expectations in those sports, which is also a reason why weight class sports and lean sports, like endurance sports, are at higher risk of developing eating disorders. So for all the high school coaches out there who are like, well, you know, I don't get why we can tell our football guys to gain a couple pounds and we can't tell our distance runners to lose a couple pounds. I don't get what the big deal is. Please sit down. Moving on to the third category, food obsession. This might surprise some people because, again, like the perfectionism and restriction, food obsession is a common theme throughout all eating disorders, whether it's binging, restricting, purging, there is an element of food obsession with all of them because there's an element of restriction. Whenever you have an aspect of food restriction, you have the compensatory behavior of food obsession. Not necessarily of eating everything, but definitely thinking about food at least 70% of the time. And this can look like talking about food constantly, scrolling through social media accounts that have food pictures all the time, TV shows like the Food Channel, the Food Network, America's Next Top Chef. And, you know, there's a difference between being interested in food and having a curiosity about food and cooking and having an obsession. So with all of these, I want us to really think about that spectrum Everything happens on a spectrum. And on one end of the spectrum, we have someone not really interested in food whatsoever. And then the more extreme end of the spectrum, thinking about food every minute of every day. I think most athletes fall in the middle and their intentions can be different. So thinking about food in the sense of, oh, I need a snack before practice. What am I going to grab? That's one thing. Being in the middle of a workout and obsessively thinking about what you're going to have for dinner is a bit problematic because at that point it's taking up so much brain space that it's really inhibiting your ability to do other things effectively. Like practicing for your sport, which is pretty important. Other things could include having a Pinterest account and having thousands and thousands of pins about food. I never did that. Having copious amounts of recipe books or recipes printed out. Being in the know about all the latest diets, including fad diets like keto, low-carb, vegan, juice cleanses, eating grass, I don't know what's out there now. It changes so fucking often. And having excessive amounts of diet products or 
only diet products. So refusing to get regular mayonnaise, having to have the low-fat options for everything. Orthorexic tendencies may also be involved here, so that means having an unhealthy obsession with quote-unquote healthy food, which is also pretty typical among athletes, because in a culture where you need to be the best and are training constantly to be the best, it can cross over into your food options, where everything you eat has to be the most nutrient-dense and the most optimal for your body. So if you have the option between like baked potato chips or organic baked potato chips, choosing the organic one every time. Even though, to be honest, in that scenario, it doesn't make a fucking difference. And having extreme food judgments either about yourself or someone else when they don't choose the most optimal, quote-unquote, healthy, vegan, gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, blah-blah-blah option. The last thing I'm going to mention about food obsession is eating compulsively when you're bored, stressed, extremely anxious, that kind of thing. And when I say that, I don't mean like, oh, I was studying for a test and I got really overwhelmed and stressed and I had three Reese's cups. That to me is pretty normal stress eating. So when people get stressed or extremely anxious, they tend to fall into one of two categories. Well, I guess there are three categories, but the first two would be under eating. So if you feel so anxious, it feels like there's an ocean of knots in your stomach and you feel nauseous and you just feel like you cannot eat. That's one group. The second group is kind of the opposite. Like you feel so anxious and nervous and it feels like hunger. So you turn to food in moments of stress. And I guess the third option would be neither of those. Like you get stressed and anxious, but you just shrug your shoulders and you're like, meh. I'll just deal with this in another way, which is also fine, but a lot less common. So when I say overeating when stressed, bored, anxious, etc., I'm not talking about the typical low-grade stress eating that happens, although if you do experience that and you still experience extremely high amounts of distress and anxiety, that's still a red flag and is a cause to talk to someone about it. But objectively, like objective overeating, when you're not hungry, when you've had enough fuel throughout the day, and when it's really just the emotional impact that's causing this to happen, and you're turning only to food as a coping mechanism. If we run through some other options that you could do to deal with stress and anxiety, those could include going for a walk, talking to a friend, taking a break, listening to music, taking a nap, journaling, doing a crossword puzzle or a Sudoku, watching some funny animal videos on YouTube, listening to this podcast. There's a bunch of stuff that we can do to take care of ourselves and reduce that anxiety and stress, but the issues come when we're using only food to manage them, and it kind of becomes a maladjusted coping mechanism, an escape, and a crutch. Think about that spectrum again. Where do you think you fall on that spectrum of using food as a coping device? Okay, that about sums it up. So, if you, dear listener, are sitting there like I was eight years ago thinking, this sounds familiar, don't pretend that it doesn't. You more than likely have resources. Use them. Whether that's friends, a doctor, a therapist, a dietitian, a PCP, whether you're a student athlete in college, high school, if you're recreational, if you're sub-elite or elite. Yes, it can be uncomfortable, Especially if any of these things did sound familiar and you're sitting there like, huh, I'm definitely not in the middle of that spectrum and I'm not on the end that's less distressing. 
You may not have an eating disorder, but you may be able to prevent one from developing. Or you may have an eating disorder, but that doesn't mean that it's the end of the world for you or your career as an athlete. The sooner you can address it with the proper support, the sooner you can think the way you want to think and live the way you want to live. And you're not the first one to struggle with these things. You are not alone. When you are in the thick of this shit, it can feel lonely as fuck. You're allowed to feel lonely. But please don't forget that you are never, ever alone. If this has prompted some curiosity in your eating patterns and thoughts, I would strongly encourage you to not only reach out to your support team, but also check out the online ED screening tool on NIDA's website. NIDA stands for the National Eating Disorders Association, and their website is nationaleatingdisorders.org. The screen can be a really useful tool, but keep in mind it is not used to diagnose anything. Its purpose is to get a better idea of how at risk you are for having or developing an eating disorder. I know it's uncomfortable, but I cannot encourage you enough to reach out to a medical professional, whether that's a dietitian, your sports dietitian, your psychologist, psychiatrist, sports psych, athletic trainer, even friends. If you're struggling to reach out to a medical professional, if you have a loved one, whether that's a family member or a friend that you're really close with, who you know isn't going to judge you for this and who is more likely to understand, reach out to them. Because our brains like to focus on what could go wrong. But you know what? Let's flip that and start thinking about what could go right. Thank you so much again for listening to this episode of The Recovered Athlete. As always, food is more than fuel, you are more than a body, and life is more than sport.